are listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM in Boulder, and we're always at Radio 1190.org, wherever you are. My name is Lucy. I'm your news director, and I'm interrupting your regularly scheduled programming for a special interview. We're going to talk about the Bears Ears Monument uh, with my friends, Stephen Strom and Rebecca Robinson. They have a book release event tonight. Uh, today is November 8th, if you're not keeping track. Uh, the book release is tonight, 6.30 p.m., in Humanities 150, it's free and open to the public. Uh, they're going to be signing books, talking about the books, and so we thought we'd just bring them on to talk a little bit about about what they found with Bears Ears and what they've been doing. Stephen and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. So can you give a brief history and a brief context of what's been going on with the Bears Ears Monument for folks who don't know? Yes. Uh, in... Uh, at the end of his term, President Obama uh, declared a Bears Ears National Monument, a 1.35 million acre monument in southeast Utah, which contains an enormous number, over 100,000 uh, archaeological sites that date back uh, more than 10 millennia. Uh, the land, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is replete with red rock, mesas, canyons, uh, it's utterly gorgeous landscape, and as I said, replete with uh, Native American uh, artifacts. It was the desire to protect those artifacts that um, motivated the president to uh, declare the, uh, the monument, and it, um, it led uh, to a good deal of unhappiness in San Juan County, Utah, uh, which uh, is home to the Bears Ears Monument, and with uh, the help of the largely Republican Utah uh, uh, political establishment, uh, that establishment persuaded uh, President Trump to cut back um, President Obama's declaration by almost 85 percent, dramatically reducing Bears Ears and dramatically reducing uh, the protections uh, that were sought for the uh, native artifacts. Perhaps Rebecca could talk about another essential aspect of, of President Obama's declaration, namely the role of tribes uh, in shaping the management of the land. Sure. Thank you, Steve. What's most noticeable about the creation of Bears Ears National Monument is that it was based on a proposal by five Native American tribes who traced their ancestry to the region, the Navajo, Hopi tribe, Ute Mountain Ute tribe, Zuni, and um, Ute Indian tribe of the Uinta Ure. Um, to them, this land is profoundly sacred, um, and it also contains, as Steve said, um, traces of their ancestry, archaeological resources, as well as um, natural resources, places where they hunt and gather wood. Um, what was unique about the proposal they made to President Obama is they wanted to co-manage this land with the federal agencies um, that manage this land. So that's the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, something that's never been done before. Um, and Obama's creation of this monument really set a new precedent for land management. Um, what uh, happened 
after uh, the contentiousness of the establishment of this monument was that the Utah political establishment, um, really in conjunction with more conservative folks in San Juan County where the monument is located, lobbied President Trump to reduce the monument, um, basically citing the uh, their connection to the land and their feeling that Obama's establishment of the monument was a land grab that threatened to rob them of their economic livelihood uh, by preventing ranching and mining um, quite a bit. And so you have this fundamental tension between um, the views and desires of Native American tribes and conservationists to protect and preserve this land in perpetuity and um, other folks in the region who have made their living through extractive industries who were very concerned about how this would impact their economic future. It's quite a complex situation going on. Um, and so you have this book, Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land. What motivated both of you to go out and write and photograph for this book? My connection to the area dates back to the late 1970s and early 1980s when my late wife and I were motivated to spend our summers teaching uh, on the Navajo Reservation uh, in uh, northeast uh, Arizona. And it was at that time that we had our first opportunity to explore the Red Rock uh, country in south, uh, southeast Utah and much of the land now com uh, comprising uh, the Bears Ears, uh, Bears Ears Monument. That experience teaching on the Navajo Reservation led to a variety of connections in the Native community, uh, connections that uh, in turn led to collaborations with the poet Joy Harjo on a book called Secrets from the Center of the World and with the Navajo poet uh, Laura Tohi on a book called Seya, which is a Navajo word meaning deep in the rock. So uh, that motivated, um, that sort of explains my connection to the land and uh, as Rebecca's uh, grandfather, uh, uh, I indoctrinated her early uh, into, um, uh, I, I don't know whether indoctrination is quite the right word, but in any event, I, I, I made certain that she was exposed at a very early age to Red Rock Country, and, and perhaps she can pick up the story from there. So Steve and Karen introduced me to these Red Rock landscapes at a very early age. I believe I was four years old when I first made a trip to the Southwest, and the land made a deep impression on me then, and I've been visiting for the past three decades. I met my husband, actually, on um, a river rafting trip um, down the San Juan River, and so um, really the course of my life has been shaped um, by these landscapes. And what inspired us to write this book was um, Karen's untimely death um, at a ceremony honoring her memory, which we had within um, the land uh, in the original Bears Ears Monument. Um, Steve and I discussed how we could best honor her memory, and we decided that the best way to go about that would, to be, would be to um, embark on a book project to really, initially it was supposed to serve as sort of a love letter to these landscapes um, that have been just so fundamental to who we are for decades. But as we started the process of speaking to people about um, 
processes to protect the area, we stumbled onto a story far more complex and rich than we ever imagined. And out of that um, reporting and research um, came Voices from Bears Ears. And so do you really take a particular stance as to how the Bears Ears land should be managed in the book? Or is it more of kind of understanding, like you say, the complexity of the situation? I would say that from the beginning, our desire was to present this story through the voices of the people who um, have the strongest connection to the land. Uh, you know, for uh, some Anglo settlers, that goes back six, seven generations, and for Native peoples, it goes back millennia. Um, in their view, they've uh, been there since time immemorial. Um, and some of this is my own background as a journalist, but um, I always skew toward objectivity in my reporting and really felt it was important to let the voices of the people with a connection to the land um, explain these complex issues. And um, our desire was to present these voices without any sort of judgment or inherent bias. And I hope we were able to accomplish that in our work. That certainly was our uh, objective. And what I think will emerge, and I don't want to presume what a reader might take out of the, uh, out of the book, but I, I think reading the book objectively, one might get the, uh, the idea that despite uh, what appears to be uh, a, a pretty vigorous uh, ideological battle, there is a great deal uh, uh, shared in common between the putative um, uh, fighters on either side of the ring. Uh, in particular, uh, both the, uh, the natives adjacent to the land and those who trace their ancestry to it, uh, and uh, the largely Mormon Anglo population uh, express a, an extraordinarily strong cultural and even spiritual connection to the land. And uh, turns out that uh, there were even there was even a great deal of commonality between the two quote unquote sides uh, when discussing the monument I think that the um, there are various ways that protection could have been achieved and various ways that native voices could have been incorporated <coughs> excuse me could have been incorporated uh, into uh, management um, decisions but uh, un unfortunately, uh, ideology and, as Rebecca alluded to before, past tensions between uh, the two sides and between each side and the federal government really acted to uh, undermine uh, the good deal of uh, commonality that existed. And this is just one aspect of uh, the greater debate on how to manage public lands, um, whether it should be federally or private. Um, how, what is that whole picture looking like then? Is Bears Ears kind of a model example for every single situation, or what, what's kind of the, the trend in that way? Well, there are multiple ways to um, protect uh, public land. First of all, uh, let me just describe what public land is and what public land is in, uh, in Utah. Uh, as a requirement for 
statehood, Utah was uh, had, agree had agreed to uh, uh, having 70% of the total land area within the state boundaries be under the management of either the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, uh, or later the National uh, Park Service. So that's public land, BLM land, Forest Service land, or national parks. Uh, the uses of those land can include everything from conservation to mining to ranching and, and so on. And the challenge is to figure out what the balance is uh, among the various uses to which the land could be, uh, could be put. And the issues usually boil down to how much conservation where, how much development where, uh, and uh, how best to manage protection of those, uh, of those land and ensure that uh, when there is mining and there is ranching, uh, that those act, uh, activities are done in a way that, uh, that are consistent with keeping um, uh, the land in shape for future generations. Uh, there are various ways that you can protect land. You can declare it a national conservation area with, uh, uh, with uh, requirements placed by legislation in Congress. You can declare it, as Beersers was, a national monument, which can be done either by co uh, Congress, but usually by the, by, by the president, or Congress could declare an area a national park. Uh, there are multiple ways of doing it, and and in fact, the multiplicity of possi possibilities also contains uh, the uh, opportunity for compromise. And with these midterm elections, um, the numbers are still coming in with San Juan County, but it looks like there may be um, Navajo candidate uh, Democrat Willie Gray Eyes. He is barely leading the race to be the next district commissioner, um, which could swing that area of Utah to Democrat control. Um, how could that change the management um, and the concept of Bears Ears? It's an interesting question. Um, I think before we answer that question, it's important to know some of the history um, behind uh, the political landscape in San Juan County. Historically, it has been very conservative. Um, Republican uh, county commissioners really have run the county for decades. Um, and before um, this most recent election, um, all three county commissioners deeply opposed the monument and were some of the strongest voices advocating um, for um, preventing that monument from being established. Um, what's more, um, the districts in San Juan County, there are three districts, and historically they've been very gerrymandered to favor the Anglo population. Um, however, a couple of years ago, I, I believe, um, there was a U.S. district judge who ordered San Juan County to redraw those districts so that they were more representative of the population, which in San Juan County is uh, just over 50% native. Um, and so what it looks like is going to happen should Willie Gray Eyes um, emerge victorious from this election is that um, for the first time in history, San Juan County will have two native commissioners as opposed to just one as a result of those redrawn districts. 
Um, and in terms of how that plays out um, in the Bears Ears Monument debate, that means that there will be two Native commissioners, both of whom have been strong supporters of the monument and have long advocated for its protection. Now, what the implications might be for how the land is managed, that's um, an open question because, as Steve noted, the, um, there's a lawsuit challenging Trump's executive order to reduce the monument, which is unlikely to be resolved for years. And so while there may be um, a more favorable um, land use policy um, for natives and conservationists in the future, um, I don't think that issue will be anywhere close to resolution for at least five years. I'd just like to add, uh, and this is a personal uh, uh, opinion, uh, recall that there, uh, even after President Trump's uh, reduction of the monument, uh, the uh, land protected as a monument is but 15 percent of what Bears Ears was, but the remainder of Bears Ears is still public land, and that public land is under uh, U.S. Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management uh, management. And uh, it, uh, it is possible uh, for that, uh, for the commissioners in San Juan County to influence um, two uh, influence events in two ways. One, uh, through the um, uh, commission that is uh, has been established as part of Trump's uh, reduced pair of new uh, monuments within the old Bears Ears mo uh, monument. So there's a way of influencing uh, influencing the direction of those discussions, and there's also the possibility of influencing the management of the remaining public lands, how the commissioners choose to interact either with Trump's commission or with the Bureau of Land Management is something that's up in the air, but it does provide them a voice and it does provide them an opportunity and how they choose to use the voice and opportunity, uh, I can't predict. Of course. And on a mildly personal note, you are grandfather and granddaughter. What was it like to collaborate on a book like this together? You know, it was an utter delight and full of unexpected twist and twists and turns. I, I think we, we approached interviewing and capturing the landscape in very different but very complementary ways. And I think um, because of that, we've been able to present a rich and nuanced perspective. And we've had, we've traveled many thousands of miles uh, on the highways and back roads of the Southwest. And I think we've, we've had a whole lot of uh, really great discussions about our creative collaboration as well as the issues raised in um, the work we were doing. And for me, at least, it's been incredibly rewarding. It's been rewarding for me uh, as as well uh, for several reasons. One, uh, to uh, learn the discipline uh, of a journalist uh, and bringing that discipline uh, into the interviews which we carry, carried out together. 
the second, I think Rebecca got to see the landscape a little bit through my eyes as I as I tried to evoke the beauty uh, uh, of the Bears Ears landscape. Uh, and for for me um, personally, uh, it is a joy to sit across from her and see not only her uh, blue eyes but my late wife's blue eyes. Uh, and it also is uh, an utter pleasure to be to receive the same sort of discipline from Rebecca as I as I receive from my wife, amplif <laughs> amplified by uh, uh, another generations of uh, generation of experience. It's quite a quite a lovely project, um, and for folks who uh, who are going to come tonight to the book preview. Um, or folks who are reading it, what are you hoping that they take away? I think the best way to answer that question is to zoom out to the 30,000 foot level and discuss the three themes we, uh, we came upon as time and again as we interviewed people for this project. Um, no matter their political leanings, no matter native or Anglo, um, all of them had a very strong cultural and spiritual attachment to the land that informed their perspectives and actions in the battle for the future of Bears Ears. Secondly, they felt as if their voices hadn't been heard um, by the national media, by politicians back in Washington, so far removed by the reality in the ground of um, rural communities in the American West. Um, and they also faced a very uncertain economic future you know, would uh, a county that historically has been dependent on ranching and extractive industries continue to move in that direction despite global trends? Um, or would they choose to go a different way and through the preservation of public lands uh, create a more tourism-friendly economy? And so those three themes really carry the book and and inform the narrative and so I hope people come away with a sense of what separates these groups and also what they have in common and despite the I would say the tragedy that unfolded um, in the fight to protect bears ears there is hope in those shared connections to the land and hopes for the future Stephen Strom and Rebecca Robinson have been joining me to talk about their new book, Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land. Uh, it's out now, and they are speaking tonight on campus in Humanities Room 150. It's free and open to the public at 6.30 p.m. Um, they're going to talk about the book, uh, do a little bit of signing, um, and the book only came out uh, just over a week ago, um, so it's very fresh off the presses. So uh, check them out. I'm going to try and come by. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Lucy. I appreciate it. Thank you for letting me interrupt your regularly scheduled programming. If you're just tuning in, I will be repodcasting this on our SoundCloud, so you can check that out later today or tomorrow morning, and it'll be up there. Uh, and now, back to the music. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Thursday. This is Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM, Radio1190.org.